Welcome back to WWC. I'm your host, Will Wright. Today we're talking about the sacrament of matrimony. And this is the oldest institution in the world, right? In humanity. God created man and woman and he set them in a state of marriage. And so it's the oldest institution there is, and it can't be revised. It can't be redefined. It's something that is. It simply exists as God created it. And so what is it? What can we learn about it? How can we live it more fully? Uh, what are the obligations and duties of man and woman in a marriage? And uh, that's what we'll be looking at today. I apologize for the little bit of a hiatus. Uh, I have been kind of under the weather with a cold or flu or something. And so uh, please pardon the slight nasally congested tone in my voice, but I didn't want to wait any longer uh, to get this out here and to get some more content going. So uh, if you haven't yet, please go to willwritecatholic.substack.com. It's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. And uh, make sure you sign up to never miss an episode. Get all the emails that I send out. Um, Those send out emails every time I post a new article or every time I post a new episode. So without further ado, let's dive in. The sacrament of marriage does not involve two persons, but three. But like Dr. Fagerberg of Notre Dame quips, by Trinitarian arithmetic, that means there are five persons involved in each marriage. And of course, he's making a joke, but he's saying that marriage is a mystery and a sacrament, just as the Holy Eucharist is a mystery and a sacrament. When we are talking about sacraments, we know that God is intimately involved, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we're asking the question, what is marriage? We need to begin there. As Pope Leo XIII put it in his encyclical on marriage in the last, uh, in the 19th century, uh, he said, Christ, our Lord raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament that's a husband and wife guarded and strengthened by the heavenly grace, which his merits gained for them. He gave them to attain holiness in the married state. And that in a wondrous way, making marriage an example of the mystical union between himself and his church, he not only perfected that love, which is according to nature, but also made the naturally invisible union of one man with one woman far more perfect through the bond of heavenly love. And so that's from uh, Pope Leo XIII's Arcanum. So the sacrament of matrimony is one of the sacraments at the service of communion. The other one, of course, being holy orders. So matrimony is a vocation. It's a calling to a state of life that joins a baptized man and a baptized woman in a lifelong covenant of love for the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. Uh, Now, notice I said they're the sacrament of matrimony because, of course, one man and one woman, whether they be baptized or not, can enter into marriage, can enter into the institution of matrimony. But that would be what the church calls a natural marriage. Uh, And really, I'm going to be focusing, since I have limited time, on the sacrament of matrimony. So between one baptized man and one baptized woman for life, what is marriage? And so let's begin with marriage in God's plan, right? The Bible begins with a marriage, begins with Adam and Eve being created, and it ends with the wedding feast of the lamb in the book of Revelation, and it contains wedding imagery all throughout. Now, at the beginning, God created man and woman in his image and likeness, and he saw that it was not good that man should be alone, 
Just as God is a communion of three divine persons, the Blessed Trinity, marriage is a communion of life and love between husband and wife with their children. And we see in, in a, a husband and wife and their children a sort of icon of the Blessed Trinity. Now, for a long time in human history, marriage had fallen from its created nature and original practice because of sin. Right? We read that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of the people's hearts. But Jesus Christ restored and elevated marriage to the level of a sacrament. Jesus' first public miracle is performed during a wedding feast. And really, when a, a man and a woman are married, they are entering into a deep communion with one another and with God. And so marriage is an efficacious sign of Christ's presence. Right? It's a sacrament. As he said, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Matrimony is thus a sacrament for two baptized Christians. And as Dr. Scott Hahn gives us a helpful reminder, he says, marriage does not make it easy. Marriage makes it possible. I love that. Marriage does not make it easy. Marriage makes it possible. Because we remember that it's about grace. Right? In order to overcome human failings, the married couple must cooperate with the grace of God and follow the teachings of Christ and his church. Marriage is oriented to the salvation of both spouses, and the more they recognize heaven as their mutual goal, the more fruitful their marriage will be, because marriage is far more than a mere civil contract. The sacrament is an indissoluble covenant, which serves as a conduit of God's grace and a means of sanctification and salvation for both husband and wife. It's a way to make them holy, and it's a way to get them to heaven. That's the idea. That's the hope. That's the goal of a sacrament. So what does it look like to celebrate matrimony and what is matrimonial consent? Well, right off the bat, I'll just say that proper preparation for marriage is vital, right? The bishops recently were talking about the need for a catechumenate for marriage. And I think it's a great idea. Here in the Diocese of Phoenix, where I live, there's a fantastic marriage preparation program. It's at least nine months uh, with a few different classes and workshops and things that people have to go through in retreats uh, to make sure that they really know what they're doing. So first, who can receive the sacrament? Well, the ones who can receive the sacrament of matrimony are a baptized man and woman free to contract marriage who freely express their consent. Now, to be free means to not be under constraint and not be impeded by any natural or church laws. If the conditions aren't met, then the marriage is invalid. Uh, when I say that word invalid, right, when we're talking about the sacraments, we're saying it doesn't exist, right? It's not just that it was illicit, that would be illegal, or done in an improper way. It's, it's actually invalid if the conditions aren't met. In other words, it didn't happen. So the two must consent totally, freely, faithfully, and fruitfully. In other words, they consent to marry for life, free of any coercion, to be faithful to one another, and to be open to the procreation of children. 
The couple declare this consent in the presence of two witnesses and before a properly authorized minister of the church, a bishop, priest, or deacon. Now, just to be clear on that, if you're a baptized Catholic, even if you never step foot in a church uh, again, so you're just baptized as a baby, never went to a Catholic church again, you are still beholden to canon law, which means that the man and the woman need to be present, two witnesses need to be present, and a bishop, priest, or deacon who has the authority to receive that consent that is exchanged on behalf of the church. And if any of those aren't met, then the marriage is invalid. In other words, it didn't take place. Those two would not be actually married. Um, So if you're listening to this and you're in that, that boat, do not stress. It's okay. Uh, just head to your local parish and take care of things. So the matter, the stuff of the sacrament, right? When, when we speak about sacraments, we can talk about matter and form and minister, right? Matter, let's say for baptism would be water. The form would be, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the words, the form it takes. And then the minister would be whoever's doing the baptizing. Well, for marriage, the stuff of the sacrament is the couple themselves, the man and the woman. The form, at least in the Latin rite of the church, is the vows they make. Uh, right. I will take you, and my wife's name is Bridget, so I'll say, I will take you, Bridget, for my lawful wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And so by saying those words of consent, or by having the deacon or priest say the words, and then you say, I do, this consent freely given without impediment makes the marriage. So consent makes the marriage. Now, after the minister ratifies and blesses the marriage covenant, then the sealing or consummation of marriage occurs later in the conjugal act, right? When the, the two have sex for the first time after consent. This consummation makes a marriage indissoluble, right? So consent makes the marriage and consummation makes the marriage indissoluble. In the Latin rite of the church, the minister of the sacrament, uh, strangely enough, is the couple themselves, right? The deacon or priest or the bishop officiates but he's only acting as an official witness of the church. Now in the Eastern liturgies, the minister of the sacrament is the priest or bishop. Uh, And in some of these communities, this is called the crowning, Uh, right? And it notice I said priest or bishop, not deacons who after receiving the consent of the spouses crowns the bride and groom as a sign of the marriage covenant. At any rate, either way, consent makes the marriage and consummation makes the marriage indissoluble. So regardless of which right you're in, that's true. Consent makes the marriage. Consummation makes the marriage indissoluble. Now, if the marriage takes place in a a liturgy, uh, the husband and wife who have been joined through the exchanging of consent at the Mass then receive the Holy Eucharist because, of course, all the sacraments are directed towards the sacrament of sacraments, the Holy Eucharist. And I love the way the Catechism of the Catholic Church phrases this. Uh, so please permit this longer quotation. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1621, 1621. In the Eucharist, the memorial of the new covenant is realized. The new covenant in which Christ has united himself forever to the church, his beloved bride for whom he gave himself up. 
It is therefore fitting that the spouses should seal their consent to give themselves to each other through the offering of their own lives by uniting it to the offering of Christ for his church made present in the Eucharistic sacrifice and by receiving the Eucharist so that communicating in the same body and the same blood of Christ, they may form but one body in Christ. I think this paragraph does a really good job of showing us just how marriage is so well ordered to the Eucharist. It's so well ordered to our sanctification and ultimately our salvation. So what are the effects of matrimony? And then also what are the goods and requirements of conjugal love? Well, Christian marriage is bound up with the union of Christ to the church and therefore is ordered to the communion of the spouses and children with God. So the effects of the sacrament profoundly reflect the essential properties of matrimony, which are unity and indissolubility, as well as the two fundamental purposes of the marital act, which are union and procreation, which those ends and those properties are very intimately connected. Right, Matrimony joins the spouses in a perpetual and exclusive bond. Matrimony gives the couples the grace to strengthen their indissoluble unity. As the Second Vatican Council puts it in Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 48, the intimate partnership of married life and love has been established by the creator and qualified by his laws and is rooted in the conjugal covenant of irrevocable personal consent. So marriage is all about a total gift of self from one spouse to the other. Matrimony and conjugal love gives a new significance, the church says, to human sexuality. More than simply a biological process or reflection of love, this good and noble act strengthens the marriage bond and it demands permanence. It demands fidelity and it demands an openness to procreation. Which, by the way, is why the church is so adamant that sexual activity be reserved for marriage. Because sexual activity shows us this demand for permanence, fidelity, and openness to life. St. Thomas Aquinas, in uh, the supplement to the Summa, question 49, article 2, as well as the Council of Trent and also St. Augustine long before them, um, speaks of three blessings of marriage in particular. Children, fidelity, and the sacrament itself. So children, of course, not every woman is able to bear children for whatever biological reasons. But for those who do, St. Paul says that, quote, the woman shall be saved by bearing children. This doesn't just mean having children, but as St. Paul says to Timothy, they must also continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So it's clear that the procreation and education of offspring has been held as a primary end of marriage since the time of the apostles. And the blessing isn't only to the wife. Of course, Psalm 127 verses 3 to 4 says this, quote, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. The next one is fidelity. The blessing of faith in marriage is the virtue of justice to remain faithful to one's spouse. As the catechism, sorry, not the catechism, as the Council of Trent puts it, the fidelity which binds wife to husband and husband to wife in such a way that they mutually deliver to each other power over their bodies, promising at the same time never to violate the holy bond of matrimony. 
mutually delivered to each other power over their bodies. Right? As St. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And let that sink in. I mean, really, let it, let's hear that with fresh ears, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. We have to remember that Christ's love for his church is immense, right? To, to, to just get a good visual of that, just look at the cross. That this love brought no advantage to him, but only advantage to his spouse, the church. So it's a selfless, sacrificial love. And the third blessing is the sacrament itself, right? The indissoluble bond of marriage. Marriage ends only in death. Just as Christ never separates himself from his church, so the wife cannot be separated from her husband insofar as regards the marriage itself. So how does the Second Vatican Council build upon these duties and summarize what has been said? In the Constitution on the Modern World, we hear this, and this is from Gaudium et Space. Uh, paragraph 48, quote, authentic married love is caught up into divine love and is governed and enriched by Christ's redeeming power and the saving activity of the church so that this love may lead the spouses to God with powerful effect and may aid and strengthen them in sublime, sublime office of being a father or a mother. For this reason, Christian spouses have a special sacrament by which they are fortified and receive a kind of consecration in the duties and dignity of their state. By virtue of the sacrament, as spouses fulfill their conjugal and family obligation, they are penetrated with the spirit of Christ, which suffuses their whole lives with faith, hope, and charity. Thus, they increasingly advance the perfection of their own personalities, as well as their mutual sanctification, and hence contribute jointly to the glory of God. So marriage is a path to holiness. Right? And the practice of marriage means undergoing sanctification. As the Second Vatican Council in the Constitution on the Church puts it, this is from Lumen Gentium, paragraph 11, Christian spouses, in virtue of the sacrament of matrimony, whereby they signify and partake of that mystery of that unity and fruitful love which exists between Christ and his church, help each other to attain to holiness in their married life and in the rearing and education of their children. By reason of their state and rank in life, they have their own special gift among the people of God. So I just want to take a, a little detour, if I can, uh, to, to ask, answer the question, can divorced Catholics receive the Eucharist? Now, when I was working in the parish, this came up a lot. And it's something that's seemingly very controversial into the in the church today, but it's, it's fairly simple. Difficult, but simple. Um, <laughs> difficult in terms of living it out, but simple if we really stick to the principles. First, it should be noted that divorce is always a tragedy. Right? We don't enter into marriage saying, oh, I, I sure hope I get divorced. Right? Being divorced, it, however, is not in itself an obstacle to receiving the Eucharist. This is a very misunderstood reality because divorce is a purely civil affair. Legal separation for the safety of the children or one of the spouses might even be appropriate in cases of serious domestic abuse. However, marriage, even natural marriage between non-Catholics, is viewed as ending only in death. And this is a fact that is preserved by the church with love and tenacity. Therefore, the remarriage 
of a validly married person transgresses the nature of marriage itself and is therefore a serious offense against the plan and law of God as taught by Christ. So though the civilly remarried cannot currently receive communion does not mean they are excluded from the church. It's the job of the church to continue lovingly care for their spiritual lives and work to normalize any irregular situations. So can divorced Catholics receive the Eucharist? Well, that, uh, that really is a conversation they need to have with their confessor and their spiritual director. Um, but if they're not remarried and they're not currently dating anyone or looking to date anyone, right? Perhaps that they left a marriage because they were um, being abused or because their spouse left them. It wasn't their fault. Um, really that, that constitutes a cross for them for a lot of different reasons, but to withhold the Eucharist, really the reason that someone should, should think about, uh, not receiving the Eucharist for a time would be in that situation of civil remarriage, because at that point we're talking about objective adultery, right? Because in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the church, you're married to someone else, your, your spouse, and now you're with someone else. And the church presumes that if you're living together and you're civilly married, that you are, um, having sexual relations. And if that's the case, you're having sexual relations with someone who is not in actuality, your spouse, that is objectively adultery. Now that shouldn't bring with it a whole bunch of condemnation and judgment and things like this, right? People, uh, go away from the church for a lot of different reasons, and maybe they're trying to come back to the church, right? They don't need our judgment and condemnation. What they need is help and love and support. And this, this pathway of uh, normalization, right? And chiefly, this normalization is investigated, investigated through the annulment process. So people who want to get married in the Catholic church eventually may find themselves in marriages that don't appear to work, be working despite their best efforts. And in these cases, the church encourages counseling first in an effort to save the marriage. But as I've said before, in cases of domestic abuse or addiction to alcohol or drugs, it might be in the best interest for safety to separate. This, however, of course, is not permission to divorce um, it's not permission from the church to remarry. Some individuals or couples might, however, after all is said and done, seek a decree of nullity, which is popularly called an, an annulment. And this is a statement of the church that after thorough examination of the marriage at the time of consent or before, right at the time that you say I do, or the time leading up to that, that a valid marriage was never established. Right. So we're not looking at what happened afterwards. Well, you know, 10 years after we got married, my, my spouse started cheating on me, yada, yada, yada. That's, that's not what we're looking at, right? We're looking at the time of consent and the time leading up to consent. Is there something seriously lacking at the time of consent, which limited the marriage in a serious enough way to make it actually null and void, to make it invalid at the time. So once an annulment is granted that decree of nullity, those involved in the invalid marriage are free to enter into a sacramental marriage or the religious life. So in order to procure an annulment, the person must prove that some kind of impediment to marriage existed at the time of consent, right? Something, um, this means they're, they're not actually free to marry for some reason, or that the intentions of one or both of the spouses was lacking and being either free 
total, faithful, or fruitful, right? So a simple example of this might be if a a boyfriend is cheating on his girlfriend um, just deliberately and over and over and over before they get married. And then the fiance, um, now that they're affianced, uh, he continues to cheat on his, uh, his fiance and she knows about it. And then they get married and he continues to cheat on her. It doesn't seem from the get go that he intended to be faithful. Of course he says he intended to be faithful. And so that would be the grounds of either partial or total simulation of fidelity. Right. So that's one possible example. There's so many different examples, but anyway, enough on that back to marriage. What is marriage? So what are the duties of married people? Well, let's start with the New Testament. Let's start with St. Peter and St. Paul. They provide quite a few duties of husbands and wives, and all of these are geared to the primary goal, get my spouse to heaven, right? That's got to be our first goal. So we'll begin with the husbands, duties of a husband. The husband is to treat his wife generously and honorably, right? Adam called Eve his companion given to him by God. And remember, Eve wasn't formed out of the feet of Adam, but his side, nor was she formed from the head of her husband. So it's not her duty to command her husband, but rather to be a helpmate to him. The husband is also traditionally expected to, using the language of the Council of Trent, quote, be constantly occupied in some honest pursuit with a view to provide necessaries for the support of his family and to avoid idleness the root of almost every vice. Fantastic advice from the Council of Trent there, to avoid idleness. And this is not to say that the wife cannot work as well, but the husband is the one who nonetheless has the normative duty to provide for his family and to avoid idleness. Finally, the husband is to keep his family in order, right? to correct morals and behavior, to see that each family member does what is expected of them and that they heed their responsibilities. So now let's look at the duties of a wife. Uh, St. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, he says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. He also exhorts women to prefer inner sanctity to external beauty. And what St. Peter is saying here is that wives have remarkable power of example over their husbands, right? They're to be obedient to their husbands in that he has the final say as the head of the house, but the woman's behavior and witness has a tremendous effect on the direction of those decisions. And a smart husband will listen to his wife, right? They will work together as a team and use each other's strengths well and make up for one another's weaknesses, right? That's the goal. Wives are called in a special way to train their children in the practice of virtue and to especially care for domestic concerns. Now, there's been obviously tectonic shifts in our societies and cultures, and there's a lot more freedom of movement for women. All right. In the Council of Trent, it actually says that a wife should not leave her house without her husband's permission. I mean, the culture's changed. And the church does not say that these developments are contrary to the faith, but the natural gifts of women, nonetheless, towards making a house a home 
and compassionately caring for the needs of domestic life are unrivaled by men and always will be. The Council of Trent ends the section on the duties of wife with the following. They say, let wives never forget that next to God, they are to love their husbands, to esteem them above all others, yielding to them in all things, not inconsistent with Christian piety, a willing and ready obedience. So why is the church so insistent on this idea of the husband as the head of the house and the wife as the suitable helpmate? Well, it's because this is what God created when he created mankind. This is the original state of marriage, which keeps everything in good working order. It's not about a power struggle. Marriage is the fundamental building block of society. If we get marriage wrong, we get the family wrong. If we get the family wrong, we get the community wrong. If we get the community wrong, we get justice wrong. And if we get justice wrong, everything falls into chaos. When our Lord Jesus Christ raised marriage back to its original place at the level of a sacrament, he also is instituting the Ecclesia Domestica, the domestic church. Throughout the history of the church, the local parish has always been a family of families, a church of gathered domestic churches. And in the domestic church, the faithful exercise the priesthood of the baptized in a most excellent way. And they're following the example, of course, of the Holy Family of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the family of God in their household, moving towards heaven as, as the catechism puts it, islands of Christian life in an unbelieving world. So it should be noted here that, that single people are not left out. Whatever the particular circumstances might be, Pope St. John Paul II reminds us in Familiaris Consortio 85, no one is without a family in this world. The church is a home and family for everyone, especially those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. So where, where is everyone going right, in the church? Where, where are the people going? So the church is getting smaller. And I think until we recapture this reality of the domestic church, the whole church will continue to hemorrhage. 79, I'm going to throw out some statistics that are probably going to make you a little depressed and hopefully we'll bring it back up to some hope at the end, but check these out. 79% of former Catholics leave the church before age 23. 79% of people leave the church before uh, age 23 of former Catholics, right? 50% of millennials raised Catholic no longer identify as Catholic today. And only 7% of millennials still actively practice their faith today. So where are they going? Well, 49% said that they're not affiliated with any religion. They're, they're what are called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 25% became evangelical Protestant. 13% became mainline Protestant and 13% became something else, whether that's Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses or Jewish or Muslim. So what's happening in our domestic churches and at our local parishes? Why are they leaving? Well, a whopping 60%, 60% of those surveyed in 2016 by Pew Research said that they stopped believing in the religion's teachings. 32% said their family was never that religious growing up. 29% perceived negative religious teachings about our treatment of people with same-sex attraction. 19% mentioned the clergy sex abuse scandal. 18% said that a traumatic event happened in their life. 
and 16% said they left because their church became too focused on politics. And what this says to me is that our domestic churches do not know how to be domestic churches. Right? The grace is there. The sacraments, including matrimony, have power. Remember Dr. Hahn's phrase, marriage doesn't make it easy, marriage makes it possible. So everyone you talk to in the church, whether they're conservative, liberal, traditionalist, progressive, whatever word you want to use, they have their own opinions and reasons why the church is losing so many young people. They'll say that it's, it's the liturgical changes. Uh, no, 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 it's the rigidity. No, it's the rules. No, it's the abuse scandal. It's Latin and tradition. It's poor catechesis. It's hypocrisy. It's something the Pope said, president or past popes for that matter, or so many other things. And I would argue that one of the largest single contributors is a misapprehension of what marriage is. Over 50% of marriages today in or out of the church end in divorce. Our society today certainly does not celebrate good holy marriages. Our country has now even tried to redefine what marriage is, and they're currently trying to take it a step further as of the recording of this podcast. And even within Catholic marriages, how many wives seek to be subordinate and loving to their husbands? How many husbands strive to love their wives as Christ loves the church with all this theological significance of that particular vocation? Our society is broken, and the first remedy to shore up the floodwaters and begin to rebuild a true culture is good, holy marriages. Really recapturing what does the domestic church look like? Because all of those other problems, all of those other things, the liturgy, the catechesis, um, people acting a certain way in the parish, all of that is, is secondary, really, to what are we doing at home? As the Second Vatican Council puts it in Gaudium et Space 49, authentic conjugal love will be more highly prized and wholesome public opinion created about it if Christian couples give outstanding witness to faithfulness and harmony in their love and to their concern for educating their children also if they do their part in bringing about the needed cultural, psychological, and social renewal on behalf of marriage and the family. So one of the very best things that we can do is give words of affirmation to those living their marriages well. Call it out. Identify it. Celebrate it. I'm sure we all know someone who is clearly devoted to their spouse and vice versa. No marriage is without its problems, but there are saints among us. So let's lift them up in prayer. Let's show them to the world as wonderful examples. And if you're married, give thanks to God for your spouse. If you're unmarried, please pray that more young people will answer the vocation to good holy marriages. Because really, I, I believe that this, this misapprehension of marriage, if we really solve that, if our, if our homes become domestic churches, if we live our marriage well and our goal is to get our spouse to heaven, then society will change. Our cultural uh, landscape will change things will start to come back together and coalesce around the fundamental building block of society, which is the family. Our families are broken and we need God's grace to put them back together. But as Dr. Scott Hahn says, marriage doesn't make it easy, but marriage does make it possible. 
Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week. Uh, I hope that you have a wonderful uh, week. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to share it with others. Uh, If you know someone who's struggling in their marriage, pray for them. Uh, Maybe share this with them and maybe it'll give them some inspiration or ideas. And uh, if you have any questions in particular about annulments or um, specific questions about marriage, uh, I was trained as a nullity minister here in the Diocese of Phoenix, so I know quite a bit about canon. I was also trained on marriage preparation in the diocese as well. So I know quite a bit about canon law regarding marriage. Uh, And if I don't know the answer, I will definitely get uh, the right people on the case. So feel free to send me an email with any questions at will.write.catholic at gmail.com. And as always, you can uh, feel free to send me any topic ideas, questions, feedback uh, to that email, and I'll make sure to get back to you. So thanks so much for listening. Please uh, feel free to share it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please uh, like the podcast and subscribe and maybe leave a review if you get time. That helps it be seen by more people. And uh, I really, really appreciate the the people listening. I mean, we have almost, uh, I think, 170 people on uh, Substack subscribe now in just a few months. So uh, I'm really overwhelmed by that. It's it's wonderful that people are are seemingly enjoying what I'm I'm putting out here. So I hope that it's worthwhile, and uh, make sure to stay tuned for more content. I've uh, got the following topics upcoming. Why does the incarnation of Christ matter? Right, we're moving towards Christmas, so I thought it would be worthwhile to do an investigation of that. Uh, why must a Christian have devotion to the Blessed Mother? And then we'll be looking at more politics in religion. We'll, we'll look at what is separation of church and state. Is it compatible with Catholicism? Uh, and then more into January, what is a moral act and how can we evaluate moral acts? And I've got a lot of other topics after that, but that's just a sneak peek of what's coming next. So that, thanks so much for listening and God bless. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.